brass instruments like the trumpet and the trombone usually play open, meaning that their bell is wide open, but they can also play with a mute. Common mutes like the straight mute, the plunger mute, and the harmon mute go over the bell of the horn and affect the sound since that's the only place where the sound comes out. Woodwinds like the saxophone have too many holes to work with a mute, which is too bad, but hey, you can't have everything. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played on cup mutes and music played on bucket mutes, and sometimes music played on every type of mute there is. We've got a very strong song played by a trumpet player who was famous for his use of mutes, and I'm excited to get into it. So find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I really have always kind of been a little bit envious of the way that brass players get to use mutes, partly because mutes are fun and they seem like a fun way to change up your sound, but also because of the existence of something called silent brass, which is a system that is basically a mute that you can put in the end of, you know, a trumpet or a trombone, only it has a microphone in it and you can then plug in headphones and hear yourself playing, which is great for practicing in an apartment building, somewhere where you're going to be worried about the sound that you're making. I was always so envious of that, especially when I was practicing a whole lot of saxophone, you know, back in the day, just because I was worried that I was annoying people with my saxophone playing, and there is just no way to to mute a saxophone. The sound is coming out of all these tone holes along the side of the instrument. Same thing is true for a clarinet or a flute or any woodwind instrument. You just can't mute it in the same way, and I always wished that I could have silent sax, but uh, it just doesn't exist. So welcome to the show, everyone. I'm glad that you're here. This is a real episode of Strong Songs. This is not an April Fool's joke. We really are going to be talking about the the song that is advertised in the title. I'm really excited to get into it. There's a whole lot to get into. I do hope that everybody liked that joke. I'm recording this before I've made the joke, so hopefully it didn't make anybody mad, but it was all in good fun. I mean, I had an episode coming out on April 1st, and I couldn't resist. Thanks so much to everyone who's reached out lately. I know everybody is very stressed, what with the events going on in the world, and it's been so nice to hear from so many of you, just with music recommendations and stories about music and things like that. Making Strong Songs has definitely been keeping me sane over the last couple of weeks, that and practicing music, and I really do recommend putting on some music if you're feeling stressed out or anxious or worried. You don't have to do that in silence. If you want to reach out with feedback, music recommendations, suggestions for future episodes, or a question for the next Q&A episode, which is actually going to be the episode after this one, feel free to reach out to me. I am at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, which is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. It's certainly the easiest way for me to keep track of everyone. But you can also reach out on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, or you can find me on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Instagram has been a lot of fun lately. I've been doing a lot of um, solid morning walks while social distancing and sharing the music that I've been listening to on those walks on Instagram, which has been nice and just one more way to share music with people. 
A huge thank you to everyone who has signed up for the Patreon to support me making this show. I know it's super uncertain times for everyone out there. If you don't think that you're able to support the show, that's completely fine. But it's been honestly moving just to see people signing up to support me making this show, to to know that you would want to help me make that. I want nothing more than to keep making this show for as long as possible. So if you want to know more about how to help me make strong songs, you can head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. All right, let's get into this recording. This is a very famous recording from one of the most famous jazz records of all time. This will be the second straight ahead jazz instrumental tune that I've talked about. I'm really excited to get into it, to break it down, to help people hear what's going on and why this is held up as such a great recording. This is the opening track from the record, and it's something that you say when someone has given you trouble about something that you just don't think matters. You look at them, and you say to them, so what? The opening track off of 1959's Kind of Blue, So What, is frequently held up as one of the most important jazz recordings of all time, and I'm very excited to get into why that is. So there's a lot to get into here, and I want to go a little bit bigger than just talking about what's going on musically on the track, even though that is definitely a big part of what we're going to talk about on this episode. I also just want to talk more broadly about Kind of Blue and the musicians who played on it, the seven musicians total who played on this album, though there were only six playing at any given time, and why this confluence of talent at this moment in time, you know, each of these people at this point in their careers and in their musical development coming together to record this album. Things like that just don't happen very often, so I want to kind of explain some of the context for this album and help people who are maybe not as familiar with jazz understand why Kind of Blue is as special an album as it is. So, I want to give you some tools to hear new things in this track and in this album, and I also want to explain some more about the people who played on it, because in the end, it was those musicians who made this album what it is, and the six musicians who played on So What that made this recording what it is. One more thing, I recommend listening to the episode that I did last year on Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers recording of Bobby Timmons's tune, Monin, not because you'll need to know anything I talked about there to understand this episode, like if you don't have time or you just want to listen to this, that's fine, but mostly because I did a lot of sort of the basics of jazz on that uh, episode. I just explained sort of how a jazz tune works, the, the mechanics of, you know, of the chart and then the solos and the head and all of that, and while I will reiterate some of that stuff here, I'm not going to spend as long just sort of doing that foundational stuff, so this episode will be a good complement to that one. And of course, as usual, I also recommend listening to the bonus episode I recently put out about rhythm and harmony, only because I am going to be talking about harmony on this episode like I do on every show, and that episode is a nice primer on all of that. So first, I want to talk about these musicians a little bit so that we can set the stage for what is happening musically on Kind of Blue and thus on So What, since that's the opening track from the album. So, vital stats up top, Kind of Blue was recorded and released in 1959, so what is the opening track on Kind of Blue? It's credited to Miles Davis, the trumpet player and band leader on this session, because it was his concept, he kind of brought it to everybody. So Miles Davis is the composer of this song, though there's definitely some discussion about who exactly wrote what on this album, because it was a very freeform recording session, and we'll get into this when we do more of an analysis of what each musician is playing, but everybody contributed creatively 
relatively a lot to this recording, and while Miles had the original sketch, he, this was a very collaborative effort. So all six of the musicians on this track contributed to the creation of this song in a way that I think is worth recognizing. Now, those musicians are Miles Davis on trumpet and also the band leader, John Coltrane playing tenor saxophone, Julian Cannonball Adderley playing alto sax, Bill Evans playing piano, Jimmy Cobb playing drums, and Paul Chambers playing bass. The seventh musician on Kind of Blue is Mr. Winton Kelly, who played piano just on one track on Freddie Freeloader, though he was a regular member of Miles' group and Bill Evans at the time was not, but Miles brought Evans back just for this album, though he had Winton Kelly play on that one tune on Freddie Freeloader. Okay, so I just said a bunch of names. If you're a jazz fan, you definitely know all of those names. Those are luminaries of jazz. Each individual player is someone very, very famous to jazz fans, and some of them, like John Coltrane, I would imagine are just household names to anyone who has a passing knowledge of music. You've probably heard of John Coltrane. But everybody on this album is a really big deal, and all of them were at a point in their career where they were about to head off and do their own thing as band leaders and kind of really blow up and do something incredible, each as individuals. So I want to take this opportunity to kind of show you where each of the artists who recorded this album were about to go on to. You can think of this as kind of a coming together point right before a bunch of points head out to different, you know, different points of the compass to each, you know, cause a little explosion of amazing music. This is when they all came together. This was the moment when they all played together as a group and did this revolutionary album before they all went their separate ways. So of course, Miles Davis is the band leader. He was already in the middle of doing a ton of cool things and would go on to innovate in a bunch of different ways um, musically. If you haven't read it and you're interested in Miles' story, I really recommend his autobiography, Miles. It is a wild read, and it kind of gives you a, a front row seats to the entire progression of jazz history, starting in the 1940s and going all the way through the 1980s. And at this point in the 1950s, Miles was like at the height of his creative powers. He was in the midst of an amazing collaboration with the arranger Gil Evans. The year after Kind of Blue came out, he would release Sketches of Spain, which is a gorgeous album, one of Miles' greatest, and very different from the small group stuff that he was doing more commonly. Incidentally, that buzzy sound that he's getting is due to the Harmon mute that he's using. That's one of the mutes that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So that's Sketches of Spain. Then in the early 1960s, he would begin playing with his next quintet, which included Herbie Hancock on piano and Tony Williams on drums. That ushered in a whole new sound as well, this kind of modal, harmony, aggressive hard bop, one of the most incredible jazz groups ever assembled. So that's Miles. Now John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, probably an equally well-known musician, he was about to completely revolutionize things uh, with his own approach to music and become kind of the, the legendary figure that he is right after recording on Kind of Blue. Now Coltrane, who's also known as Train, so Train was about to record Giant Steps, which is one of the most important jazz albums of all time as well. It's another one of the most important jazz albums of all time. He would release that in 1960, just a year after playing on Kind of Blue. 
Blue. Giant Steps took a very different approach to harmony from Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue is all about, you know, staying on one chord for a long time, giving a musician a bunch of measures to just sort of solo over a single harmonic space. Giant Steps crammed a bunch of chords together, especially the title tune, Giant Steps, and it moved in a much more loping vertical way that added, you know, a, a greater degree of verticality and difficulty um, to the to the act of improvising over those chords. So here's a clip of that. This is Giant Steps, the title track off of 1960s Giant Steps. That dude can play. So that's 1960. Then in the 1960s, uh, John Coltrane would form his classic quartet. This featured Elvin Jones on drums, McCoy Tyner on piano, and Jimmy Garrison on bass. And he would record a bunch of really influential, really amazing music, mostly for the Impulse label. And that includes his classic album, A Love Supreme, which embraced much more of a sort of modal stretched out structure, as well as a more spiritual approach to improvised music. Coltrane and his musical spiritual quest is its own whole topic, and I really recommend another book, actually. This is a book by Eric Nissenson called Ascension that's all about John Coltrane. It's a fascinating read. If you want to know more about Train, I highly recommend reading it. So I want to keep everybody oriented here because I'm going to go through the other musicians on this album before we get into the nitty-gritty of this song. Basically what I'm doing is showing you one thing that each of these artists recorded as a solo artist immediately in the aftermath of making Kind of Blue, either in 1959 or 1960, and then a second thing that they made four or five years later in the mid-1960s to demonstrate how each of them kind of charted their own course and headed off in a different direction, despite occasionally still collaborating. Because jazz is such a spontaneous kind of music, the individual musicians on a given recording session play a huge role in how the music comes out, much more so than a lot of the music that I talk about on Strong Songs, you know, stuff that's very produced and very composed and written. Because of that, the personnel winds up being so important important and fascinating that if you start getting into jazz, it's very fun to look up who's playing on which album, and you can kind of just track each musician's individual course as they weave through the years and their recording sessions, turning up in various places and in various configurations. To help with that, I have made a new playlist. It's called the Strong Songs Kind of Blue Playlist, and you can find it linked in the show notes. And it will take you on a chronological course through all of the artists and all of the songs I talk about on this episode. Don't put it on shuffle. Listen to it in order because it's in chronological order, and it'll help you get a sense of how each of these artists developed over time after recording on Kind of Blue, and also just how the music changed in the decades that followed. So let's keep going. Cannonball Adderley, the alto saxophone player on Kind of Blue, another jazz genius and a legend in his own right, one of my very favorite saxophone players and probably the guy with the best swing feel of anyone I've ever transcribed or studied or listened to. 
So what did Cannonball do after playing on Kind of Blue? Well, Cannonball also had a quintet with his younger brother, Nat, who played trumpet. The Cannonball Adderley Quintet is one of my very, very favorite jazz groups. They're just killer. A much more groovy and kind of blues-based thing than some of the other musicians who played on Kind of Blue. And you can actually hear that in Cannonball's playing on the album, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He would record and release albums with that group all through the 1960s, but in 1960, that same year, right after Kind of Blue, he released uh, Live in San Francisco, which is a killer, killer record that I super recommend listening to. So groovy, so much good playing from everybody in that group. And then to trace Cannonball further out into the 1960s, he was still playing with Nat, and he was also playing with the keyboard player Joe Zavanul, who wrote the tune Mercy, 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 that was the title track on the 1966 album, killer, killer album called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. Can't recommend this one enough. It's so good. That band was so good. And I mean, you can hear when he's a band leader, he's kind of funkier, right? He went in his own stylistic direction, despite playing a lot of really great straight ahead jazz and also killing this more modal, you know, experimental stuff like he was doing on Kind of Blue. All right, so let's move on to Bill Evans, another extremely influential musician who played on Kind of Blue. So in the same year as Kind of Blue, actually, but at the end of the year, in December of 1959, Bill Evans released Portrait in Jazz, which was a piano trio record that he recorded with Scott LaFaro on bass and Paul Motion on drums. So that trio, Scott LaFaro, Paul Motion, and Bill Evans, known as the Bill Evans Trio, is one of the most influential groups in all of jazz because of the organic way that they played together. Scott LaFaro's bass playing was just kind of a different thing than had ever really worked in a piano trio like this before. They went on then through the 1960s to do a whole bunch of recording together on a lot of kind of old-fashioned jazz standards that were so carefully controlled but then set loose in this certain way that wound up making every recording feels so spontaneous and beautiful. Um, Their album Trio 64 in 1964, this is a live recording from New York, it's just endlessly fascinating to listen to once you kind of key in on what they're doing. In terms of the musicians who played on So What, that leaves drummer Jimmy Cobb and bassist Paul Chambers, and it also leaves Wynton Kelly, who was the other piano player on Kind of Blue, who played just on that one track on Freddie Freeloader. Now, all three of those men kind of functioned a little bit more as side men and moved around as a rhythm section even after recording on Kind of Blue. In fact, those three, Wynton Kelly, Paul Chambers, and Jimmy Cobb, stayed together as the Wynton Kelly Trio and played all through the 1960s, and man, they got tight together. 
They sounded great as a piano trio, more straight ahead than the stuff Bill Evans was doing, but just swinging and really, really good. They also would record with the jazz guitar legend Wes Montgomery, and in 1965, there's this live recording of them. It's uh, the Wynton Kelly trio, Smokin' at the Half Note, featuring Wes Montgomery. One of the most swinging albums I've ever heard. It's so, so, so good. There, like, there isn't a bar on that record that isn't completely locked in. That album was actually recorded just a few years before Montgomery died, and it's my favorite Wes Montgomery album, and it's all about the way that the Wynton Kelly trio, those three musicians who also played on Kind of Blue, um, it's all about the way that they lock in together. It's, it's just killer. And that's it. Those are the musicians who played on Kind of Blue, and I hope that by establishing this framework, this foundation, before we get into the song, I've helped you get a sense of just who it was who was playing on this album, because like I said, each individual musician brought so much to this album, and you know, that's true of a lot of jazz records, but that's particularly true of this album, partly because each of them was a visionary, you know, a brilliant, brilliant musician um, in his own right, and for them to come together at that moment in time, right before each of them set out on their own path to create their own amazing art for the next several decades, it's just a, such a special thing, and it's one of the reasons that this album is unlike any other album. Now, if you read Miles' autobiography, you will learn that he was a very flawed individual, but one of his great strengths, and his greatest strength maybe as a band leader, was his ability to pick personnel and to really let them have the freedom that they needed to, to do their thing. He picked the right people, and then he set them loose, and that was maybe never truer than on Kind of Blue. Bill Evans wrote the liner notes for Kind of Blue. They're worth giving a read. They're pretty cool liner notes. And the way that he describes the conception of this album is as follows. Quote, Miles conceived these settings only hours before the recording dates and arrived with sketches which indicated to the group what was to be played. Therefore, you will hear something close to pure spontaneity in these performances. The group had never played these pieces prior to the recordings, and I think without exception, the first complete performance of each was a take. End quote. That is unusual, even in the world of jazz, for that to be the case, and part of that is due to the unique nature of these compositions, especially for the time period, so that is what we're going to talk about next. So now it is time to talk about this tune, about the minimalist nature of the composition itself, about the modal harmony that drives it, and about the four solos that occur during its runtime. Now first I want to talk about how So What is arranged, because for all the innovative things about this song, the arrangement is actually pretty standard. Now on that episode about Monin, I kind of broke down the general way that a jazz small group will uh, you know, arrange a tune, and So What does the same thing. Basically there's, sometimes there's some kind of an intro, there's definitely an intro here, then the whole band 
band, the horns and the rhythm section will play the melody one time through the form. In this case, this is a 32 measure form, so they play 32 bars. They play the melody of the song. That's also known as the head to jazz musicians. They play the head 32 bars. After the head comes the solos. Each soloist takes any number of choruses. One chorus is, you know, a single time through that 32 bar form. Um, these solos on So What are all two choruses, except for the last ones. They go two times through 32 bars. You just play with the rhythm section, just kind of freestyling a little bit on the same harmony that the melody uh, played over while the soloists improvise solos over the same chord progression. Then you play the head out or the melody out. You restate the melody one time through on the way out and maybe do some sort of an outro or something and end the song. So what follows that form? They do a sort of freestyling intro, then they play the melody. The bass, Paul Chambers, is actually primarily responsible for the melody on this song. They go one time through the melody. Then there are solos. Miles Davis plays a trumpet solo. Then John Coltrane plays a tenor sax solo. Then Cannonball Adderley plays an alto sax solo. then Bill Evans takes a one-chorus piano solo while the three horn players play arranged little hits um, in harmony as backgrounds for his solo. And then they take the melody out, and that's really it. It's a simple arrangement. There's only four solos. And as we're about to talk about, the song itself is in some ways pretty simple, too. At least it's simple on paper. It's very minimalist, but that doesn't make it easy. In fact, it is the way that each musician chooses to fill up all the space that this song provides them with that makes the magic of the recording. So when I say So What is Simple, that's because it's really just two scales. It's two key centers, and that's it. In fact, Bill Evans describes the song so perfectly in the liner notes that I'm just going to read his description. It's one sentence and it totally encapsulates the song. So here's Bill Evans from the liner notes for Kind of Blue. Quote, So what is a simple figure based on 16 measures of one scale, eight of another, and eight more of the first, following a piano and bass introduction in free rhythmic style. End quote. And that's pretty much it. There are two scales in this song. There's 16 bars of one, then eight bars of another, that's the bridge, and then eight bars of the first one. That simplicity is the core to why this was a revolutionary approach. Miles had had one kind of modal tune on his previous album, Milestones, but before that, bebop was the kind of defining style of jazz, and bebop was all about having a lot of chords in a compressed amount of time. So bebop was the dominant style of jazz in the 1940s and the 1950s. What bebop musicians really liked to do was take old Tin Pan Alley standards from the 1920s and 30s and kind of zhuzh them up with more chords. They would increase the amount of chords per bar and then give themselves more to do so the tunes became very vertical. A good example of that is the tune Donna Lee, which was recorded in 1947 by the Charlie Parker Quintet. Charlie Parker, of course, one of the lions of the alto saxophone and a bebop legend, Miles Davis, very young, was actually playing in this band. Miles actually says that he wrote this tune. It's credited to Charlie Parker. Either way, it's actually based on the chord progression for the old standard Back Home Again in Indiana, but it's much spicier with a lot more chords and a way way more complicated melody. This gives a sense of kind of where bebop was at in the late 40s, and it kind of kept going in that direction through the 50s. Mm -hmm. 
so you know, a lot of chords are happening. There's pretty much two chords per bar. It's a lot of harmony and a lot of notes. Now, it wasn't quite a straight line from there to kind of blue. There was also the cool jazz movement that Miles Davis was a part of, where there was still a lot of harmony, but the sounds were more relaxed. But I want to move things along. Because for Miles Davis to have the idea to record a song where there's just basically one chord for the first whole 16 bars, and then just one chord for the bridge, was a radical idea. That said, chord is maybe not the right word. So you may have noticed that when Bill Evans was talking about the form, he said there were 16 bars of one scale and then eight bars of another scale. He didn't say chord. And that's because this is a modal tune that's more about scales than it is about chords, even though Bill Evans is, of course, playing chords on the piano. You may have heard the term modal jazz or heard kind of blue referred to as a landmark in modal jazz. I want to really quickly explain what that means. So if you remember on the Rhythm and Harmony episode, I talked about the difference between a scale and a chord. A chord is a series of notes stacked on top of one another. A scale is a series of individual notes placed end-to-end, played one at a time. So for example, a C major chord sounds like this. A C major scale sounds like this. Modes relate to scales, not chords, so a mode is a scale. The easiest way that I can describe it is basically if you take that C major scale and instead of starting on C and ending on C like this, You start on, say, F and end on F, like this. You're playing the same notes, it's still a C major scale, but instead of starting on C, you're starting on F. That is a different mode of the C major scale. That mode happens to be called Lydian. So there are a bunch of different modes. There's modes of all different kinds of scales. The ones we're going to be focusing on here are the modes of the major scale. I'm going to really quickly name them for you. They have cool names, and they're fun to say because it sounds like you're talking about something very weird. So starting on the first note, so this is the key of C, if you just play from C to C, that is called the Ionian mode. If you play from the second note, from D to D in the key of C, that is called the Dorian mode. So basically you're playing a C major scale, you're just starting and ending on D, the second degree of the scale. Now the other modes are called Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, and Locrian. I'm not going to explain them all here. I've explained them on past episodes, but that's not actually that important because Dorian is the only mode that appears in So What? And it's just important to kind of know what a mode is to understand this song. Now I mentioned that Dorian, the second mode, is the one that really matters for So What? And that's because the two scales around which So What revolves are D Dorian and then E flat Dorian up a half step for the bridge. Now you can play these as chords as I was just kind of doing. You could kind of play it as a D minor six chord and then an E flat minor six chord or some variation of that, maybe using the 13th, which is the sixth up the octave. The important thing is that you are not just playing D minor, because D minor, it doesn't have that natural sixth if you're just playing in the key of D minor. And the natural sixth, that is the kind of brightness that Dorian has that makes it sound like Dorian and not just like any other D minor chord. So that's the thing to get your head around with this song. There are just two chords, and if you're on the bridge, you're up a half step from where you are for the rest of the song. 
So for most of this song, they're just kind of playing around in this one key. Um, the bass is just sort of walking quarter notes through that key, picking picking the right notes to play. Bill Evans on the piano is just playing chord voicings on the piano that match up with that chord, usually a D minor with a natural sixth. And then the soloist is just choosing notes largely just from that one scale, from D Dorian, that minor scale with a natural sixth, and then playing shapes and melodies uh, selecting from those notes. So all I'm doing here on flute is just playing up and down the D Dorian scale. I'm just doing it in a kind of a tasteful way. So the way to orient yourself when you're listening to So What is to just try to figure out which key center you're in. Are you in that D Dorian minor sound or are you up a half step in E flat Dorian minor? And the more you listen to this song, the, the more quickly you'll be able to acclimate yourself to where you are in the form. I know it's tempting to just put on Kind of Blue and listen to the entire album, which is a great thing to do, don't get me wrong, but it's actually pretty cool to just treat one song on the album as the thing that you're focusing on. I mean, this track is almost 10 minutes long. It's a lot of music, so it's worth just sitting with this recording and listening to it a bunch of times and becoming more familiar with the intricacies of what's going on. So let's get into this tune. I want to talk about the melody first, then I want to focus a little bit on the solos and just on what's going on underneath some of them. Let's start at the very beginning beginning. So this intro is just Paul Chambers and Bill Evans playing a kind of written out or sketched out thing together that's a loosely interpreted uh, sort of freestyle, almost harmonic tone poem that doesn't actually really match up with the rest of the song. It's pretty cool. It fades down to Paul Chambers on bass, who then takes it away with the melody. So that's the first cool thing about So What. The melody is actually played by the bass. This song is more of a bass showpiece than it, than it may seem like. Um, Paul Chambers has a lot to do on this track, and the first thing that he does is he plays the melody. So the melody line sounds like this. So a lot of jazz has call and response, and this tune is no different. If you treat that line as the call, you know, here's the call. Then the response comes initially from the piano and then eventually from the horns. So you can basically think of it as the response is, so what? Maybe the bass is saying, I gotta play the melody, so what? I gotta play it on my bass, so what? I think at some point somebody did write lyrics to this. They're probably pretty cheesy. I prefer mine. But that's kind of the structure of it. The bass has a call, then the keyboard actually with the drums as well. Jimmy Cobb does that little, so what? He's keeping steady time on the cymbal, but he does it with the kick drum. And then eventually the horns as well, all kind of reply to the bass. So it feels a little bit like a conversation. So the horns come in for the second time through, so these are the, this is the second eight bars of the song, which means it's time for the bridge. Right here. Feel how it's lifted? It's just a half step higher. And then back down for the last eight bars. And with the melody done, it's time to go right into the solos.
So it really is very simple. I mean, just 16 bars of that D Dorian sound, then up a half step for eight bars of E flat Dorian, and then back for eight more bars of D Dorian. That's what they do on the melody with the bass playing the melody and the rest of the band doing that response to the bass's call. And then they just go into a regular swing feel for solos through the exact same form, do that a bunch of times, then play it out. Once you get your head around it, it's not hard to track. The magic, of course, is in the particulars and in the details. So let's actually zoom in on the first eight measures of Miles Davis's solo. Eventually we'll do the first 16, we'll get up to the bridge, but we're gonna start with the first eight. This is a really famous solo. It's taught to a lot of jazz students because it's a, it's a good first one to transcribe because it's simple, but it's so elegant. And that really kind of captures Miles Davis's uh, style, at least when he's soloing on this kind of thing. He could be a pretty ferocious and pretty burning trumpet player when he wanted to be, but he was also a very elegant and thoughtful musician. This is a very elegant and thoughtful and well put together solo, so I want to talk about it, but actually, before we talk about what Miles is playing, I want to talk about what the rhythm section is playing. So listen to the first eight measures of Miles Davis's solo, listen to what he's playing, but also listen to what Bill Evans is playing on piano, listen to what Jimmy Cobb is playing on the drums, and definitely listen to what Paul Chambers is playing on the bass. So I want to build that from the ground up because it gives a good sense of the role that each of those musicians is playing, all four of the people playing right now, the bass, the drums, the piano, and the trumpet. It also gives a more general sense of how each of those instruments fits into a general you know, jazz performance, which is good because this is a pretty straightforward swing feel. It's pretty straightforward in, in a lot of ways, just in terms of the role that each person is playing. So let's start with the bass. The bass is definitely the foundation for this whole thing, and Paul Chambers is doing what's called a walking bass line. Now, actually, I've talked about this before, even way back on one of the earliest episodes of Strong Songs I ever did about Stevie Wonder's I Wish, I talked about how that tune's groove is distinct because it has a walking bass line on it, despite being a kind of a funky, you know, R&B song. In jazz, a walking bass line is very common. So what that means basically is that the bass is improvising a bass line, mostly in quarter notes. So if the tempo is one, two, three, four, one, the bass plays but doom 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 and he's improvising that and that's really important to know that Paul Chambers throughout this entire tune has a lot of free reign in what he's playing he maintains a steady walking bass line pretty much steady quarter notes but he is coming up with new lines to play and he's reacting to what the solo is playing to what Bill Evans is playing on the piano and kind of filling in the space Now, something that I've talked about several times on this show is that the bass is actually a melodic instrument, and that's a really important thing to keep in mind, particularly in a jazz small group like this, because the bass is playing one note at a time, which means that a bass line is its own type of melody. It doesn't seem like a melody in the way that, you know, a saxophone playing a really lyrical line up above the band. That's really clearly a melody, but what the bass is doing is playing a melody, and what Paul Chambers is doing here is kind of constantly composing this rolling melody 
melody that runs under the course of the entire song. He has a very distinct role in this recording because he keeps playing the entire time. He's playing solid quarter notes the entire time, but he's changing up what he's playing, and I highly recommend listening to this track and only focusing on what Paul Chambers is doing. It's really cool. So in the spirit of that, let's listen to those eight bars again and focus only on the bass, and I'm going to play along with him on piano so you can kind of hear what he's playing during those eight measures. So that's what Paul Chambers is doing on the bass. Now let's talk about Jimmy Cobb. So Jimmy Cobb plays a very restrained role on this track. A lot of what he's doing is just playing a steady swing feel with his hi-hat snapping closed on two and four, kind of like that. And then his ride cymbal, which is his right hand, he's playing on the ride cymbal, Pretty much steady quarter notes with a little subdivision, a very steady ba-ding, ding, 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 ding. And you can think of that ride cymbal as being kind of purposefully matched up with the bass, with what Paul Chambers is playing. Sort of like this, listen to how they're matched up. So that leaves Bill Evans on the piano. Bill Evans is doing what's called comping, and in jazz that means you're kind of improvising your accompaniment to the soloist. Comp is short for accompanying, and that's typically what a piano player or a guitar player, whoever's playing the chords in the jazz rhythm section, is doing. The soloist is playing a melody, some sort of a line. The bass and the drums are holding down some sort of a foundation, in this case with a walked bass line and a pretty standard ride cymbal swing beat, and the piano player is comping along with the soloist. So the piano player is a little freed up to play uh, more sparsely or more busily depending on how the piano player chooses to play. In this case, Bill Evans is playing very sparsely, especially at first, in the spaces between Miles' phrases. Listen to what Bill Evans is playing on the piano. He's over in the left channel at the very beginning of Miles' solo, and um, fair warning, he doesn't play a whole lot, at least not at first. So that's the foundation, and with all of that set up, it's really cool to imagine the rhythm section as they support each solo, because they play a little bit differently under every moment of this recording, and they always are improvising. They're improvising within the structure of a jazz rhythm section, and they're improvising within the structure of the song. They're not playing as many notes or as loudly as the soloists are, but they are improvising just as much as the soloist is improvising, and all four musicians that that are playing at any given time are playing together sympathetically with one another and listening to each other in a really cool way once you kind of dial into what they're doing. Now the compositions themselves are a crucial aspect of why Kind of Blue is special even among jazz records because remember these were just sketches that no one had ever played before. A lot of jazz records you know they're playing standards they're playing tunes that everybody kind of knows which makes it easier to just lapse into what you usually play on that song. In this case the 
music was entirely new and it was so loosely sketched that everything was much more spontaneous because all the musicians were playing it for the first time. That's true for the soloists, but it was also true for the rhythm section. A jazz instructor that I had in school would describe a piano trio, you know, a rhythm section, kind of like a triangle. And I think this is actually an interesting way to imagine them. Picture a triangle with a point at the top and two points at the bottom on the left and the right. Up at the top is the drummer, over on the left is the bassist, and over on the right is the piano player. All of them are connected, but they're connected a little bit differently. The drummer's right hand, which is usually, if the drummer is right-handed, is playing on that ride cymbal, that's locked in with the bass player. So that's kind of a line straight from the drummer over to the bass, because they're both playing those quarter notes. The drummer's left hand, which is over on the snare and the hi-hat and maybe the rack tom, um, that's more doing some improvised comping that matches up a little bit more with what the piano player is playing. In this case, Jimmy Cobb is playing very, very um, restrained. He's not doing a lot of comping with his left hand, but occasionally he will. You'll hear him play little fills to set up, you know, the start of a new chorus. And that is like kind of locked in with what the piano player is doing because it's more sparse, it's more rhythmic. So then the piano player is a little more matched up with the drummer's left hand. And then of course, the bass and the piano are just matching time together. If you think of those lines connecting the three instruments, you can start to see and then hear the rhythm section in a new way. With all of that in mind, let's listen to the first 16 measures of Miles Davis's solo, listen to the rhythm section, but also listen to what Miles is playing because that's what we're going to talk about next. So it's such a carefully phrased solo, it really holds together very well. He ties later ideas back to the early ideas. It has a nice just sort of continuity to it. It's a really great solo and a very easy one to understand. So let's go phrase by phrase. The very first phrase of Miles' solo is just three notes. So that's it. His opening statement is these three notes. That's a D and then a B and then a D down the octave. It's cool that he plays the B in the middle there, which it's a little like he almost could play an A there. For a long time I thought it was an A, but it's a B, which is that natural sixth, which remember is the sort of defining sound of Dorian Minor. So he opens up playing that, that note in his opening statement. So after that comes his second statement. You can really think of it like he's talking and he is uttering um, phrases in a longer paragraph. His second phrase sounds like this. So the six notes ending on that double little D, ba-da-ba. And that little ending of the phrase is something that he then references back to a whole bunch of times in his solo. His next phrase takes that phrase he just played, and then immediately plays it two more times, so it creates kind of a stack of three of them, with each one developing the idea a little bit more. So in that stack of three, the first one is almost the same as the line he just played. The second one takes the same rhythm and idea, but it goes up instead. 
And then he ends this longer phrase by restating the original idea a little bit more quickly. So playing that third phrase all together on the piano, it sounds like this. So it's three little phrases that create this perfect paragraph, an initial statement of three notes, then an initial motific statement, and then a longer statement that develops that motif three different times before ending the same way that it began. functions so much like a sentence, like a public address. It has a kind of, you know, a salutation to get your attention. It introduces itself with an idea. It then develops that idea in a way that brings you forward. You could imagine a great public speaker addressing a crowd in much the same way as Miles Davis addresses the listener at the beginning of this solo. Like, just come up with some words and imagine a person speaking them in this same cadence. Listen to me. I've got something to say. The thing I've got to say relates to how we live our lives today, so pay attention, okay? It doesn't even take that active of an imagination to hear the phrasing and the language in what Miles is saying. Sure, it's abstract, he's not using actual words, but you can draw a straight line from that kind of phrasing, especially that kind of improvisational phrasing, from the 1950s, the 1940s, and what jazz musicians were doing, to the 1980s and 90s, and what rappers and hip-hop artists were doing. It's all a big line in the same musical arc. So in the 90s, when you hear Q-Tip open the low-end theory with this... Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you can find the abstract. Listening to hip hop, my pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, Well, daddy, don't Or you, you hear know? Erica Badu begin her live set with this. <laughs> I mean, I don't exactly have to draw you a chart, right? Those are all just points on the same musical line. Alright, back to 1959 and back to Miles' solo. So those second eight bars are busier both on the part of Miles Davis and on Bill Evans, who, remember, is comping on piano and improvising what he's playing. He's listening very, very closely to what Miles is doing. And also, remember, they hadn't played this song that many times. They worked it a little bit in the studio, but this was very fresh, so everyone was listening so attentively. You can really hear that in what Bill Evans is doing. Like, Miles will leave a space after a phrase, and Evans will jump right in there. Listen to this. But of course, comping on piano does not just mean playing chords when the soloist isn't playing. You're not just filling space. You also want to accompany the player. And on the very next phrase, Bill Evans really beautifully follows Miles as Miles heads up a scale and adds a slightly more colorful line than what he's been doing so far. Definitely his most elaborate phrase so far of the solo. Evans is right there with him playing these longer chords that extend out and support what Miles is doing just perfectly. Perfectly. 
that last line before they go to the bridge might sound ornate on Miles's part, but it's still just a D Dorian minor scale, and he actually ends it but that same D note that he's been playing to this point, he ties it back to the earlier phrases, so there's this beautifully self-contained quality to those first 16 bars. I'm gonna play that phrase again, and then listen after Miles ends his phrase, Bill Evans sets up the bridge just super beautifully. He, he opens up the chords a little bit and moves them up a half step into that E-flat Dorian sound. Man, it's so good, and it really underlines just how rich this music is. I mean, this album is, you know, like I've said so many times, one of the greatest jazz albums of all time, and that's, I think, because the music was so fresh to all the musicians that the improvisational nature of what they're doing was enhanced. So that's true in every jazz group, and that's why the personnel make such a big difference, because each person is creating something at every moment, and once you know how to hear that, it makes for a really rewarding listen. So listen back one more time to the first 16 bars of Miles Davis's solo, listen to what he's playing, listen to what Bill Evans is playing sympathetically with him, listen to what Paul Chambers is playing on the bass, listen to how Jimmy Cobb's right hand, that ride cymbal is locked in with Paul Chambers, listen to the whole thing and let it just kind of wash over you 16 bars of a single solo from a nearly 10 minute recording. So that's 16 measures of Miles' solo, but you could apply that same kind of a magnifying glass to this entire tune, and of course to this entire album, and I hope that you do because that level of beautiful spontaneity is on display throughout the entire recording. So when you listen to John Coltrane's solo, pay attention to how very Coltrane-y it is. He's playing very vertical, he's playing with a strong sense of geometry, each shape is kind of locked in with a whole bunch of other shapes, and he moves super quickly up and down the horn. And notice how much more Bill Evans is playing on piano and how much busier Jimmy Cobb is with his left hand on that snare drum while Coltrane is playing in order to support the significantly stylistically different way that Coltrane is soloing. Both Miles and Train establish a motif and then develop it, but when Miles develops a motif, it sounds like this. And when Train does it, it sounds like this. You know, playing 
that's a motif that he develops the same as Miles develops his much more straightforward motif, but he's John Coltrane. He's not Miles Davis. So he plays differently and he has a different voice, but his voice is still in the service of the tune. The same thing is true of Cannonball Adderley, who's a much more straightforward and kind of melodic player in a more traditionally melodic way than Coltrane, which leaves his solo being really flighty and quick, but also very pleasing. He's playing a lot of these very nice, tasty lines. Each of his phrases could be its own song. Like right there, that line from Cannonball kills me, man. That I bet when you heard that line, you were focused on Cannonball. But listen to it again and listen to what Bill Evans plays on the piano. It's so cool. And listen to how as Cannonball plays those quarter notes, he's locked right in there with Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb. All four of those musicians are just playing perfectly in sync. It's just such amazing stuff. It's so rich. It's so endlessly interesting. If you can really meet it halfway and bring your ears to the recording and see and hear what's going on, it becomes this amazing thing that you can listen to over and over and over again and always be hearing new things. In his liner notes for Kind of Blue, pianist Bill Evans writes of the Japanese traditional painting style Suibukuga, also known as inkwash painting, and he describes it as a style of painting in which you must never undo a line, and you actually can't even always stop painting because you may punch through the thin parchment, and as a result, you just have to move forward, always moving forward. He writes, erasures or changes are impossible. These artists must practice a particular discipline, that of allowing the idea to express itself in communication with their hands in such a direct way that deliberation cannot interfere. Evans goes on to write that group improvisation is a real challenge because it's so hard to get a group of people to improvise at the same time sympathetically to one another. He writes, aside from the weighty technical problem of collective coherent thinking, there is the very human, even social need for sympathy from all members to bend to the common result, end quote. When you listen to Kind of Blue, you can certainly hear how the musicians all bent to one common result. Evans continues, as the painter needs his framework of parchment, the improvising musical group needs its framework in time. Miles Davis presents here frameworks which are exquisite in their simplicity and yet contain all that is necessary to stimulate performance with a sure reference to the primary conception. It's just such a beautiful way of thinking of this album. It's perfect. Imagine So What, just one track off of this album, as a large piece of parchment paper with six artists standing in front of it, each of them drawing lines and shapes on the parchment, and they can't erase anything. They can't stop drawing at any moment. They all have to move forward while looking around at one another and seeing what the other artists are drawing and adjusting their own work in real time to sympathetically create something much, much grander than any one of them could have created on their own. 
As Evans writes, the resulting pictures lack the complex composition and textures of ordinary painting, but those who see well will find something captured within that escapes explanation." End quote. And that's kind of blue. Six artists standing at a parchment, painting together in perfect harmony, a grand work of complex simplicity that captures something so beautiful that it escapes explanation. And that'll do it for my analysis of So What, the opening track from Miles Davis's legendary jazz record, Kind of Blue. I hope that this analysis gave you some new things to listen for the next time you listen to this album, and also gave you a new appreciation for the incredible musicians who happened to come together to make this album at this point in time. Check out the playlist that's linked in the show notes to hear more of each of their music. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you're all taking care of one another out there. And if you know anyone who might like this show, hey, tell them about it. Huge thanks to all my Patreon supporters. Find out more about how to support me making this show at patreon.com slash strong songs. Felt like we had to have a trumpet bring us home, so this episode's outro soloist is the one and only BJ Cord. He works at Monet Trumpets here in Portland and is an amazing player. Stick around for BJ, and I'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs. Mm-hmm.